So today we're going to uh, have a little bit different, uh, usually, I wouldn't call it, I guess you'd call it a sermon. I don't know, what would you call it? It was a sermon. Uh, really talking about the church today and really kind of wanted to talk about what it means to be the church. So a little bit of teaching and a little bit of thinking about what our church is about here in Seattle. And so I think uh, to kind of get us thinking about the church and what we mean by church, let me reflect on something. So I'm a pastor and so when I see people from church out in the community, the first thing they think, this is what they think of first, like, was I in church Sunday or was I not in church Sunday? Like they're trying, you can see the wheels turn when they meet me, like out at the grocery store or out on the hiking trails, whatever. And they're like, hey, was I, oh, I, what, what's my excuse now? What's, you know, you can see the wheels turning, trying to figure out how they're going to answer that church question, right? And they'll often say to me, like, well, you know, I went to church on, now we can say, I went to church online Sunday, you know, it's like, so it's a good, a good thing to say, right? Or I went to church in person, or I went to church, it was good to see you in church. And so this phrase, I went to church, I want you to think about just saying that phrase, I went to church. What do we mean by that? When we say to somebody, I went to church, well, more specifically, we went to a church building, right? Or we went to a church worship service, but is that the church? Is that all the church is? Is the church simply a meeting on Sunday morning? Because I think a lot of times we define and think of church that way when maybe the church is more than that. I would challenge us to think that the church is actually more than just meeting on Sunday. And what does it mean by when I say that I went to church? I think that's an oversimplification of the church. So I want you to say something today to yourself. And if you get nothing else out of this sermon today, at least get this piece right here. And you can go check out after this or whatever, because really the rest of the sermon is just about this. But I'm going to preach it anyway, by the way, so I'm not. But think about this phrase, I am the church. Say that. I am the church. Say it one more time. I am the church. So wherever I go, there is the church. Think about that way. Think about the fact that it's not a place that I go, a geographic location or a building, but it's who I take with me and who I'm following, right? So the word in the Bible that we interpret from the Greek church is this word called ekklesia, and I'm transliter- transliterating it here. And you could also spell it E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. That's also where we get the Hispanic uh, word for that as well. And so one of the things here is it means one summoned to a meeting or called out ones. So in Greco-Roman society, when they wanted to get the community together, when they wanted to discuss an issue, they would summon the elders. They would summon uh, people from the community and have them come to gather to discuss whatever it was, and this was called an ecclesia. This was called a gathering of the summoned ones or the called out ones to come and discuss something in the community. That's the original use of that word. In the New Testament, it gets used as the church. It gets referred to as a church. Now, here's how Jesus uses that word when he is in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 16. He says this, I tell you that you are Peter, and I will build my church on this rock. The gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. Hear this? I will build my church on this rock. He's referring to Peter. 
So where is Jesus building the church? You can interact now, participate. It's, this is like Sunday school a little bit. If you're new here, this is a little bit like Sunday school. Um, so what is, what is it? What's it who, where is Jesus building church? Is he building in a geographic location? Is he building a building? No. What, what's that? He's building it on people. He's, in fact, he's building it upon a disciple. Discipleship is where the church is built. We see this throughout the New Testament, actually, that the church is built upon discipleship and disciples and followers of Jesus. So when we say, I am the church, I am confess, making a confession that I am a follower of Jesus, and so wherever I go, there's the church. Jesus is building the church. That's where the church is, right? And it's not just a geographic location. Notice that Jesus never built a building, never, in fact, he he talked about destroying one, which got him crucified. But he, he talked about building the church upon discipleship. And today we're looking at what does it mean to be a disciple-making church. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to read a couple, we'll read a little bit of this and we'll come back to it. But in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, I believe in this passage, chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 13. If you have uh, your Bible with you, sorry, we're going to start in verse 9, not 13. Uh, the calling of Matthew, it's called in your Bible. So you can turn there in your pew Bible. It's 1179 if you want to grab one of those books in front of you, page 1179. You can go to your phone app, Bible app on your phone if you got that. Or you can just look at the screen. If we ha I'm, not I'm not 100% sure we got it up on the screen, but it we might. So stay with me. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9, right? And here's how it starts. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And as Jesus sat down to eat at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. I want to pause there. I would suggest this is the earliest church gathering, right? They're summoned to a meeting, to a meal, to a gathering by Jesus. And who's at in this church? You know, a lot of times we think the early church is Acts in the Acts. But in, this, in Jesus, when Jesus was here, this is one of the earliest gatherings of the church. And so looking at that text, again, here's where you can participate. Who's in this church? Sinners, who else? Tax collectors, who else? Disciples, and who else? Jesus. Sunday school answer is always Jesus. Right, so we got four answers here, right? So notice who makes up this very early church, right? It, it, it's, a, it's an eclectic group, isn't it? <laughs> Most important person there is Jesus, right? We know that. But disciples are there, but also sinners. And notice this, tax collectors. I feel bad for the tax collectors. They get their own category of sin, right? And the reason is, is because they were complicit in the Roman government and cheating people out of their money and resources. They, cheat, they, they, they took advantage of people. They took advantage of the poor. They were complicit with the Roman government that was occupying the territory. And so they had their own category. They, they weren't even in the sinner category. They were tax collectors. That was like worse than the sinner category, just to give you a little sense of that. So really, in this early version of Jesus' church, everybody's there. 
Nobody's left out. Interesting. So I want to now compare that to the North American church. And this is where we're going to get a little uh, more teachy than maybe a little, I don't even know what to call it. But I want to talk to you as kind of like a church consultant right now. Um, So I want to look at three ways that we do church in North America and I've been up, and when I talk about this, know that I have experienced this. I have been trained in this. There is nothing I am saying that I haven't been trained, taken a class on, read a book about. Does that make sense? And uh, these are the three, com- and we're just going to see in this first uh, church focus, we're going to talk about the different focuses of the church in North America today. So the first one is on church growth. And I think we have a diagram there. So the primary focus of this church model is on church growth. It also takes into into its ministry growing believers and reaching the lost, right? And so the church growth model, though, and I have been trained in this model, is what we would refer to as an institutional church. It's a church that has a model where it says, come and see, you know, come to us, check us out, try and attract people to it, And we hope that you like it enough that you stick around and want to follow Jesus, right? So it's a come and see model. It's an attractional model. It's an institutional model. Here's the other thing about this institutional model of church growth. It's about butts and bucks, right? You know what I mean? Butts and bucks. Like how many butts can we get in the seats and how many bucks can we get in the offering plate? Butts and bucks. And so when we measure those things in the church growth movement, and so that's been a part of the North American church. We see that in the mega church. We see that in all kinds of churches, this focus on church growth. It really is about conversion and converting people, then, then they become disciples. And actually, if you look at some of the studies and research done around the mega church, you'll see, like, for example, Willow Creek has actually confessed that they have failed at this. They've done a great job of making converts, but they have done a horrible job of making disciples. And they actually have research to show where they, and they, would, they say to themselves, you know, we fell short here. And so they, I, I like that they're honestly confessing that and saying, what are we going to do about it? So, but again, that's the model. Let's convert people, and then they'll become disciples. But what we know in North America today is we've got a lot of converts, converts, and very few disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples, not converts. So believe, here in this model, it's believe and then belong. So you become a member, right? You believe, once you believe, then you can become a member of the church. Worship here is a production, right? We're about production, and I, again, pointing all the fingers right here at myself on this one, right? And so we're all thinking about that. How do we produce something that will well, people would want to see and watch online, and we're thinking about those things, right? They're led by preachers and teachers. Again, you can just point the finger right here if you want. The other thing about the institutional church is there's a high level of control in this church. Institutions want to control everything. Now, the next type of church, it shifts, and the primary focus on this next church is on growing believers. And I've also been a part of this church and been trained in this church model. And this church is more inward focused. It's more the ideas that we'll grow the people, the believers, and then they go and be Jesus, right? And that's the kind of idea. So it's a grow then grow then go model. It's a parental model where we teach you what to say, what to do, and then you go do it. 
and uh, that's kind of that model. It's still based in let's make some converts that will then later become disciples, and then we'll train the disciples once they become disciples. You can, the other thing in this particular church model is that you belong and then you believe, right? There's a sense of belonging, come be a part of a believers and believe with us, and then you are a part of us, right? And then worship here again is still in a production mode. There are church leaders in this model, preachers and teachers, but also church leaders, uh, small group leaders, Bible study leaders, class leaders, right? And then in this, level, this model of church, there's like medium control because there's still some trust in the people and as they go out in the world and equipping them. And so there's still some level of medium control in this. So now those are two models. But what we see in Matthew chapter 9 is something different. So let me go, let's go back to the text here first. Matthew chapter 9, let's go back to Matthew chapter 9 and let's pick up again in verse 11. It says this, but when the Pharisees saw this, when they saw this, what are they seeing? Sinners and tax collectors and disciples and Jesus eating a meal together, right? Moment. And they said, um, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. So notice that in this Jesus church in Matthew 9, who's there again? Sinners, tax collectors. That's what Jesus is being accused of. But this is another model of church. And here's the other model church. A church that is primarily focused on reaching the lost. And this church behaves differently than the church growth model or the, the grow and go church, grow believers model, right? This is a different model. It's outward oriented. It's, here's the di distinct difference, I think, of this church. It's grow as you go. <laughs> grow as you go. Like, go do it, experience it, come back and let's talk about it, right? Experiential discipleship, trying practices, right? And so it's a grow as you go. You, here in this model, you're actually a disciple before you're a convert. Think about that. Does that sound new to you? That's what was happening here. The disciples were followers of Jesus, but they don't yet haven't been converted. In fact, when we read about Jesus' words to Peter... That was the moment of his confession. He confesses his belief in who Jesus is, and then that's when Jesus says to him, I'm going to build the church on you. So it's at his conversion, happens after his discipleship. So he's practicing following Jesus before he believes in Jesus, is what we're saying, right? So that's what's happening. You belong, and then hopefully through the community and belonging and being disciple and being disciples together, you believe and confess. This worship here is less production and more spirit-led worship built around testimony, baptism, healings. In this, this model, there are more coaches and facilitators and disciplers, and there's low control in this model. And actually, we see this in Jesus. When Jesus sends out the 72 disciples, he sends them out. Notice he does not go with them. He does not control them. 
He does not micromanage them. He sends them out and says, hey, you go with my authority. Go heal the sick, preach the gospel, tell people about the kingdom, and then come back and let me know what God did. And that's what he does. So there's low control now because Jesus isn't managing what they're saying or how they're behaving or what they're doing, right? He's just sending them out. They are growing as they go. So of these models of the church, and if we are the church, which one do we need to be today? I think the church growth model there's nothing wrong with these models. By the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these models. They have their strengths, they have their weaknesses, and they have worked at different seasons. My thought here to share with you is that I think this last model is the model for today. The model, the first, the church growth model, it, it, it's not going to work. We need to let go of it. The grow believers, and then we'll go, and I've heard that a lot, and that's what I've heard over 20 years of ministry. Well, pastor, just grow us, and then we'll go. But the going never happens. There's a lot of growth, spiritual growth, but not a lot of going. And so that's why I think this model is what we need today, that we need to learn how to grow as we go in our discipleship. So how would this look there? We need to shift the way we do ministry. And so one of the things that we need to shift in our thinking here is that, and this is really, I'm going to describe to you what, I, what happens in the church, and I would say first free church, is that we hire 10 staff or clergy persons that then go recruit 100 volunteers to, give, to, to create ministry for, let's say, 1,000 members. Uh, that's, what, that's what a lot of us in first free are wanting to get back to, right? We want to get back to the good old days when that was happening. But that's still steeped in the church growth model or the grow and go model. So what would be different if we shifted to thinking this way? That we have 10 staff or clergy that are equipping 100 coaches, facilitators, leaders that are disciple makers, that are discipling 100 leaders that are discipling 10 people. That's a thousand disciples that are then going and being the hands and feet of Jesus in the neighborhood of like 10,000, 20,000 in the city. That's a different way of doing ministry. And here's what I think about First Free Methodist Church. I believe that within our church, we have a hundred disciples that could actually be discipling 10 people. Does that... Do, do, would you agree with that? Would anybody agree with me on that? I think some of you know enough to actually go disciple 10 people who may be a sinner or a tax collector in your life. Who, if we stop spending so much time in meals with other believers and more time in meals with people who are sinners and tax collectors, people in our neighborhoods, people that don't go to church, and help introduce them to Jesus and brought Jesus with us into those meals, just like this meal in Matthew chapter 9, would that make a difference? I think it would. I think it would. And you know, some of you have been around a while. You know that we've encouraged prayer walks in our neighborhoods and to pray over our neighborhoods. Well, we're willing to go a step further today. And here's what we're willing to do. We've got money in reserve here at our church. We are blessed. 
and we have this money just sitting there, we would rather invest that in disciple-making ministry in our community, in our city. So here's what we're going to ask you to think about, pray about. If you feel God calling you to make disciples in your neighborhood, we will put money behind that. If you have an idea, if you have some kind of creative idea where you want to go help be the hands and feet of Jesus and serve people and love people and connect them to Jesus in your neighborhood and you have an idea to do that, we will help fund it. So we are willing to pray with you in your neighborhood. We're willing to fund new ministries, innovative ministries in your neighborhood. We're only going to ask you to lead it, to be a disciple, and to, and to reach other disciples and make other disciples in that ministry. Is that, are you with me? You follow me? But we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. That's what we're saying. I talked to a leadership team about it. The finance team has talked about this. Our, our church is behind this. Our leaders are behind this. So that's going to be a shift for us, right? And where we're spending our money. Here's the other thing. We, were, we need to shift in the way we love people. In the passage we just read, who was having a hard time loving people? The Pharisees. They couldn't get it. They couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus, why are you having dinner with sinners and those really bad people, tax collectors? He, they were having a hard time with this because they had categories of people that said, these people are in, these people are out. These people are clean, these people are unclean. These people are worthy, these people are unworthy. And Jesus, you're a rabbi, a worthy one. Why are you with the unworthy? And that's where Jesus says what he says, right? He says to them, you know, he says to them this, verse 13. Let's remind ourselves what it says. Look at it. Go and learn what this means. By the way, when we go and learn, that's discipleship. Going and learning is discipleship. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. Go and learn. That's discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple is to go and learn. And what Jesus is asking the Pharisees to do is be disciples. He's asking them to go and learn what the difference is between mercy and sacrifice. What does mercy look like? What does it mean to be merciful? It means the inclusion of people that maybe don't think like us, agree with us, look like us, talk like us, as Christians, quote, air quotes, sorry. Right? Here's a great definition of mercy. In G, from this, I actually read this in a commentary from uh, Donald, Dr. Donald Hagen from Fuller Theological Seminary. He said this, Jesus' mission is predicated upon mercy and not merit. No one is despicable enough by the standards of society to be outside his concern and his invitation. Here's the thing that we wrestle with, the Pharisees wrestle with, what I think the church wrestles with is that loving people and offering mercy is messy, really messy. It's hard to do. Can, does anybody agree this is hard to do, right? Have you ever tried to love somebody that you don't think the same with, right, you know? And, and you know, I get that, right? And it's hard to have meals with people, with some people, right? 
because they think different than us. But part of that is mercy, right? I think offering hospitality, a meal to someone, is actually an act of mercy, right? It's a, it's a way of saying, I wanna, I'm willing to be in relationship with you, right? That's what Jesus is saying to these sinners and tax collectors. Like, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be a part of your life. I'm not going to separate myself from you, right? Which is the whole spirit and attitude of Jesus, of God in Jesus to the world, right? And it is messy, and it requires humility, and it requires grace on our part. And it, it remi- it remi- sometimes it requires us to do some really uncomfortable things. I'm going to share with you an uncomfortable situation I had, and this happened um, over 20 years ago, probably in the late 90s, so that's how old I am, sorry. Um, in the late 90s, this is before this was a topic of discussion in contemporary culture. So in the late 90s, I had a colleague, a friend, a, a golfing buddy, a pastor who we pastored together in a community, and so we had a relationship. I'd known him for several years. He lived not too far from us. He had a wife, two kids, and uh, he announced that he was leaving the church and that he was, tra- he was suffering from gender dysphoria, and he was going to go to another country and have a, a reassignment surgery. And so he did that. He left the country and I guess it was probably about a year later that I saw him, and he was a pastor um, as well, still a pastor at this time, but chap- a chaplain in a, um, in a nursing home. And I, we were gathered, a group of pastors, you know, pastors work during the week too. Some people think, oh, we only work on Sundays, right? And uh, so we were together at a meeting, and I noticed that... Um, my friend that I'd known for several years was now a, a woman. And I recognized her. And I noticed that she was standing in this clergy meeting all by herself. Nobody was interacting. Nobody was talking to her. And I, I knew because I knew them. And I, but I said to myself, Matt, you have a relationship with this person. And so I went over and I said hello and asked how she was doing and what's been going on and what they were doing in ministry and all these things. And we had this kind of chit-chatty conversation and I'm going to be honest with you, it was awkward for me. It felt uncomfortable for me. But then another pastor came over and another pastor that, again, we were all friends, we all knew each other. And this pastor came over and says, oh, I don't think I know you. And I said, well, you know, know, so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And introduce them and I'm kind of like you know you ever been in one of those situations where you're like trying to drop hints and the other person's like not getting it and it was one of those situations and again this is back in the 90s this is back when this wasn't even a topic of public discussion and as we're talking and I'm kind of like are is are they gonna get the like this other pastor are they gonna understand what the who this person is and kind of wondering, but we kept talking and talking about ministry, and, and then all of a sudden, this other pastor just gets it. Like, the light bulb goes off, and I still remember watching his body language in that moment. His body language was this. His eyes got wide open, and he was in shock, and then he turned red-faced angry, 
And he began to glare, angry, angry stare at this other pastor and get really angry. And you could tell he just wanted to say something, but he didn't say anything. And he just got red, angry, and stormed, I mean stomped off and refused to engage this person anymore for the rest of the time we were there. And I don't think ever again. And in that moment, I kind of looked at my, my friend and I said, you know, I'm sorry that happened. What's mercy look like? What does it look like to go and learn mercy? I don't think my pastor friend, the other one that stormed off, was exercising mercy or love or grace. It was so angry about whatever their disagreement with the issue is that they weren't willing to be in relationship anymore. And that's not merciful. What does God do with us when we're sinners and tax collectors? What does God do with us when we're the unworthy ones? In fact, I think a better definition of the church would be the invited unworthy ones to follow Jesus. Because we're all unworthy ones, right? We're all at some point sinners and tax collectors, right? All of us. And we all needed God's mercy. See, this is where it gets messy, isn't it, right? How do we love people? It's messy. It's complicated. It's hard. I'm just saying that's not what mercy looks like. Mercy is not angry, storming off, shunning, walking away, never being in relationship. Because if God decided to be that way towards us, <laughs> wow, we'd be in trouble. But God didn't. God chose to send Jesus. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet God's enemies, while we were yet the unworthy ones, God loved us in Jesus. And it's messy, isn't it? But God can handle the mess. I believe that. And so can we. And God has given us, and that's part of discipleship, to go and learn mercy. I'm going to wrap up today just with some reflection questions. Usually we do this at the end of the service, but I want to take this moment just for us to reflect and think about the church. So here's the first question. What is your definition of church? And how would you describe it to someone else? Number two, who is the church for you? And does, the church, does your church or understanding of who's in the church include sinners and tax collectors? Number three, what shifts does First Free Methodist Church need to make to be a disciple-making church? I'd love to hear some your answers on that one. And then number four, what shifts are you willing to make to be a loving disciple of Jesus? Amen? Let's pray. God, we come to you today. We thank you that you have shown us mercy that you have loved us, even when our lives are messy and complicated, and we at times are even hard to love. We all have our quirks, we all have our moments, we all have our flaws, and we stand and sit here today in need of your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. And God, thank you for your invitation to follow Jesus, to go and to learn what this mercy looks like and how to live out this mercy and love 
in our lives? How do we help us to see how we're to love others in a way that is merciful? We need your help, God. We can't do this without you. So would you send your Holy Spirit upon us? Would you shift our minds? Would you shift our spirits? Would you shift our hearts by your Holy Spirit in ways that help us to be people who are learning mercy and love? And it is learning. And it takes time. And Lord, we ask just that your Holy Spirit would guide us today. In Jesus' name, amen.